from Luminary Media and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Melinda Gates. I never in a million years thought I was going to work on gender equality. I thought gender was the soft issue, like, oh, women work on gender equality. No. If you don't chip away at the inequities that exist for women, you will never have the impact you want to have with your dollars in philanthropy, ever. Period. Full stop. How the talented young programmer had a meteoric rise at Microsoft and then later became the founder and co-chair of the largest private foundation in the world. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In 1889, Andrew Carnegie, then one of the wealthiest men on earth, wrote an article called The Gospel of Wealth. And that article basically argued that wealthy people have a moral obligation to give away their fortunes. Now, at the time, this was groundbreaking stuff. And it was the catalyst for what would become a tradition of philanthropy in the United States. All those foundations like Ford and Kellogg and Rockefeller and Walton, you can trace their origins back to the ideas in Andrew Carnegie's 1889 article. But even before Andrew Carnegie... George Peabody had given away half of his $16 million fortune, and that was back in 1869. By 1937, the famous industrialist J.D. Rockefeller would leave almost half a billion dollars to his foundation. Now, fast forward to 2018. That year, Americans made more than $427 billion in charitable contributions in a single year. And while most of that money came from small donors, huge foundations also drove that giving. And the biggest out there, you probably already know, is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Its endowment is now more than $50 billion. And to put that into context, that makes the Gates Foundation's endowment bigger than the GDP of countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Iceland. And believe it or not, giving away money is hard work because there are literally thousands of organizations and causes that would like some of that money. And so it means that running a foundation is also about making tough choices and keeping focused on the mission and its goals. 
And so you can probably imagine what Melinda Gates' life is like. A life she never really planned for or imagined until she met and eventually married Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. But before all that happened, Belinda was actually a super talented software engineer who was recruited to join Microsoft right out of college. And from a pretty young age, she can remember just falling in love with computers. Well, I was first exposed to computers in high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic school and I had a math teacher, Mrs. Susan Bauer, who had gone off to a conference on the weekend, and she came back. She'd seen the first Apple II computers. She came back so excited that she immediately went to the head nun of the school and said, we have to get these for the girls. And I believe they got us five Apple II computers for the entire school. And so she said to those of us in her math class, would any of you like to take this elective and learn to program? And I put my hand in the air and I uh, immediately fell in love, honestly, with programming computers. It was a, I thought it was a lot of fun. Hmm. What, what do you remember about, about it that was interesting or exciting to you? Well, I always I liked math early on, and I loved the logic uh, and, and the cleanliness, honestly, of math. And I think when I started to program the computer, it's also incredibly logical, but it's creative because you create something at the end. It's a little embarrassing to say, but my first computer program uh, was programming um, essentially a smiley face, which we had to make a square because mm -hmm. you couldn't make a circle back then, mm -hmm. bounce around a screen uh, to music. And so just the idea that you could create something from nothing by understanding this computer language um, I found that uh, incredibly interesting. You you would go on to study computer science at Duke um, in the in the early eighties. Were you? I mean, I, I'm imagining you were probably one of the few women in that program at the time. There were very few women. There were more women, honestly, freshman year. Um, but certainly by sophomore year, a lot of those women had had gone by the wayside, had dropped out of that program. And I just remember coding with guys, basically. But by the time I graduated, well, I was finished with my computer science classes, honestly, by the end of junior year. But by then, I was actually running a team of guys to run a whole software project program for our end-of-year final and having to write the user manual that went along with that. So by the time I graduated, I was used to just programming with guys. And there was nothing really, honestly, unusual about that. Um, I want to ask you the question that that what's that? Is that a boat behind you? Wordless. Oh, it's a mower. Hold on, a mower. he's going by. Okay. I'm, I'm at an office building, but I guess he's going to some <laughs> lawn. Okay, I think we're good now. <laughs> Did you at that time when you because you you graduated from Duke in in '86 and then you stayed there to earn an MBA? How did you imagine your life and career at that point? Did you think, uh, I'll go into computers or I'll start a business? Or did you have a sense? Yeah, I. so I finished my computer science degree in three years at Duke. And so I realized, you know, programming late at night in these labs in the basement of buildings, you know, where you're up till 3 a.m. or you're up all night, I thought, you know, 
I love this, but I don't want to be behind a computer all day. And so I knew I somehow wanted to be on the business side. And that's why I applied to business school. And back then they had a program, one or two people could get in sometimes a year, where if you went undergraduate for three years, but you were finished with your credits, then you could go on in another two years, uh, do two years in business school. And at the end of five years, come out with dual degrees, an MBA and a computer science degree. And that was also a bargain for my parents. I, I honestly had that in mind too. It was hard for them to put me through college. And uh, I didn't want to ask them to sign up for six years of tuition. And so, but I knew I wanted to be on the business side. I wasn't thinking I would start a business, but I wanted to be in the business. And by then I had worked for IBM for two summers. And so I'd gotten to see what it was like to be inside a corporation. So I guess like after you you graduated, you got your degrees, um, your first opportunity uh, was with IBM. Like you were you were ready to sign on and become an employee but that that didn't happen. There was some, some twist of fate that 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 meant that you didn't go there. What what happened? Yeah, I look back and it seems so unusual and ironic to me. But yes, I had a standing offer from IBM. But I said to them, I'm going to interview other places. So by spring of my MBA year, uh, the offer was in Dallas, where I had worked in the summers. I went back through Dallas and I met my hiring manager at IBM. And she said to me, are you ready to take accept this offer? And I said, well, I've interviewed other places, turned them all down, but I have one last place um, I want to go interview before I come back and accept. And she said, would you mind me asking what company that is? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm actually on my way. I'm passing through Dallas. I'm on my way to Seattle to interview with this little company called Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, wow, okay. She said, would you like a piece of advice? And Microsoft had just gone public the year before. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. And she said, if you get a job offer there, you should take it. Wow. And she floored me, quite honestly. And I yeah. said to her, why, why, why do you say that? I mean, this is my hiring manager. And she said, because IBM is a fabulous place for a career. It's a great place for a career as a woman. But you will have to spend time moving through each rung of management. And she said, if you're as good as I think you are, she said, at a company like that that's growing so fast, she said, your rise would probably be meteoric. Wow. And the experience you'd get. And it turned out to be very sage advice. Yeah. I mean, do you think about those moments in life, you know, because I, I often ask people about luck uh, or just, you know, f- just a, a moment in life that you don't know at the time is going to change your life. But that's one of those moments. I mean, this is a person who was there to recruit you for IBM and she was really thinking about what what was best for you. Yeah. I mean, I look back and I think, how unbelievable is that? You know, and I do believe in luck. Bill and I both believe in luck, that sometimes you're just put in the right place at the right time by no doing of your own, and that if you've worked through, you know, issues or your skills, sometimes pieces come together. And uh, for me, that was one of those magical moments. So you get to Microsoft in, in 1987, and what what was the, what was it like at that time? I mean, obviously, much smaller company than it is today. But what do you remember about about that time? Yeah, much smaller company than today. It was less than fourteen hundred employees. Um, we were hard charging. We were going fast. I was one of the first MBA class that was hired, and there were nine guys and me in that in that hiring class. Uh, we were pretty hellbent, quite honestly, on changing the world. And we knew we were doing it at the time. Um, 
yeah, we were going hard and fast. We worked incredible hours. I was working minimum 12 hours a day, yeah. very sleepless nights. You'd go home, uh, basically change your clothes, you know, shower, sleep, and go back to work. And I remember my friend picking me up in my in her car one day that she lived near me, and uh, we both were eating our cereal, our breakfast, in the car on the way to Microsoft. Hmm. So at my, my, at Microsoft, were you were you working more on the on the product marketing side or more on the engineering side or, or a combination of the two? Well, originally I was working on the marketing side. That's what I got hired to do. But they knew I had this technical degree. Yeah. And what that IBM hiring manager had said to me turned out to be true. I mean, the groups were growing so quickly and so fast. I turned out to be a really great recruiter. Um, so I was often asked to be on people's interview schedules. But very quickly, I moved from marketing to starting to run teams because I understood the code. I understood the pressure the programmers were under. I understood the customer needs, or I did my best to do that, even though we were creating things that customers had never seen. So very quickly, I moved into a role where I was managing a small team on one project, eventually Microsoft Publisher. And then I was managing multiple teams, and eventually I was managing a big chunk of what became our consumer division. By the time I left nine years later, uh, I think in my organization I was running teams of a total of 1,700 people. Wow. I, I read that that about a year and a half into your time at Microsoft, um, you thought about leaving. I did, for sure. <laughs> um, it was a very hard-charging culture, as I said. And... There weren't many technical women. There were a lot of women in the company, and I had friends for certain in other MBAs, certainly other women in communications. But the entire company, I just felt the culture was brash. And when I went into meetings, you had to hold your own. You had to know your numbers. You were fighting kind of tooth and nail for your point. Uh, we were always behind schedule and, you know, having to justify that, which was valid, Um but I just got where when I would go home on the weekends and, you know, you'd be in the grocery store buying something, you know, for your apartment, I didn't like myself. I didn't hmm. like how I was treating people in the world outside of this company. And I thought, this isn't who I want to be. And I didn't think I could be myself inside the company and be successful. So I thought I might leave. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility at such a young age because you were in your 20s. I'm trying to, trying to understand how you how you went through that evolution because because you you start at the company it's this hard charging culture you yourself feel like you're not happy with the way you're acting in the world um, and i'm assuming maybe i don't know maybe you were unkind or maybe you were just short or curt i, I don't know what it was but how did you sort of get to a place where, where you thought i need to change this about me my very best friend in life from high school, and I'm still friends with her, Mary Lehman, uh, she came to visit me and she actually lived with me for a month. And I remember her saying to me at the end of this month, you know, Melinda, life is about more than just smart people. And it just really struck me. I thought, huh, she sees me being different in the world or acting differently than I did when I was in high school and college. And when your best friend says something like that to you, you just really perk up and listen. And I thought, hmm, she's right. I'm inside of a company where we so value being smart and hard charging and knowing your point and arguing. And I thought, hmm, I must be taking that on. 
because you're right. I, the words you use were exactly right. I was short with people outside of work. I was curt or unkind. And so I thought, well, I'm going to probably leave, but I will stay and just try being myself. It probably won't work. I thought I would fall flat on my face and fail. But what I found was the more that I could be myself and the more circumstances I would be myself, the more I was managing bigger teams and the more I could attract talent from around the company. And people would even say to me, how did you get that guy, that developer who was over on operating systems to come work on a consumer application? And I said, I don't know, maybe he just wanted to work in this culture that, you know, I, I had people's back. Um, I wasn't rude to them. I wasn't brash. I gave them very direct and honest feedback. You know, I was doing people's reviews quite often. Um, but it wasn't, but it did. I didn't feel it needed to be harsh. So how did you start to kind of figure out your own management style, how you were going to lead people? I think... So this is going to sound funny, but in high school, I managed the drill team. My senior year, I was the captain of the drill team. And that was 150 girls having to get on a bus on a Friday night and be driven across Texas. And they had to show up with all their equipment and, you know, their boots on and their pom-poms and everything else. And I had to have a backup strategy. If they didn't show up, they were hormonal. They were upset. If you can manage 150 high school girls, I think you can manage almost anything, <laughs> I finally decided. And I had to manage up because the woman who was nominally in charge of us just was not very present. I had to open bank account. I had to manage her. Um, so I learned a lot in high school about management, unbeknownst to me. Then, as I said, when I got to college, I was, by junior year, I was managing small teams of men, software teams. Um, so by the time I got to Microsoft, I already had some of those skills. And then as I started managing teams, I learned that, you know, people want honesty. They want candor. And I wasn't afraid to have honest conversations with people, both about the things I thought they were doing well, but the things that they I felt they could improve upon. And I think in those meetings, uh, particularly in a performance review, I tried to be very kind to people. I could put myself in the chair on the other side of the table and say, how would I want my manager to treat me in a performance review? And I would slow down enough to do that because I both wrote out their performance review, which could be six, seven, eight pages, and then I sat down for the conversation. Yeah. Well, was it important for you to be liked? Hmm. I would say back then, yeah, probably so. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, to be liked, for sure. I wanted to be liked. Uh, but you can't always be liked, yeah. right? So I cared about being liked by the people I cared about and respected. I didn't care about being liked by some of the people in the company that I just thought were jerks. I couldn't care less <laughs> if they liked me. Um, and I was willing to be in their face about issues, too, if I thought they were wrong. Yeah. How did you, how did you meet Bill? <laughs> so... Um, I'm 22 years old. I um, started at Microsoft, and three weeks into my job, uh, my manager said they were going to send me to New York to negotiate a deal with a small software company that we were trying to do this deal with. And so I flew to New York, but when I contacted the travel department at Microsoft, they said, okay, well, our policy is if there are other Microsoft female employees in town or, you know, males for males, you'll have a roommate. I said, great. So I had this female roommate I'd never met, and she, she said to me, hey, we're here for this 
conference called PC Expo, there were, you know, maybe three dozen Microsoft employees in town. We're having dinner tonight before the expo opens. When you come back from your business meeting, why don't you come straight to the dinner? Um, it'll be a chance for you to meet other Microsoft people. And I said, great. So I came to the dinner late because I was coming from across town and I there were two chairs open. I sat in the second to last chair that was open. And about 10 minutes later, Bill came in and sat in the chair next to me. And that's how I first met him. Was that, I mean, already at that point, I mean, Bill was kind of famous, right? In, in the U.S., he was getting a lot of attention because he was this young guy who started this company that was growing very fast. Was 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 that in was it I don't know maybe intimidating is not the right word but I don't know what was it a little bit So Bill was intimidating inside the company for everybody right yeah. <laughs> But he was also he was revered in a certain respect and people knew he was a lot of fun And so for me it was more like hey this is a curiosity he'll certainly be interesting to meet to sit next to somebody at dinner is just not hard for me to sit in a meeting across from them where you're reporting to them and reporting on your software project that's hard but to sit next to somebody at dinner I'm really good at that so hmm. no that wasn't intimidating and that was just more like oh this is curious So eventually of course the two of you become a couple and um and he's running the company and was it I don't know was it ever awkward at all um, well, I had very bright lines. I figured out early on that if we were dating, we didn't hide it for very long because we knew we can't, couldn't. Yeah. People would figure right. it out. But I had to have very bright lines, and I was very explicit with my teams that worked for me, that I absolutely did not discuss uh, Microsoft issues with Bill on a date or at home or wherever we would be. I just didn't. And they could tell because when we would go into meetings, he would be quite shocked about certain things, our schedules, where we were on, on issues, et cetera. So I had these very bright lines, and I thought that was the only way that teams could work for me, and I could be candid with them. And when we would be preparing for a meeting with Bill and Steve Ballmer about a project that was often behind, and they were scared, right? And they I, they had to know that I wasn't going to go say that to him at home or I, or I couldn't manage them, right? And that became very clear to teams that I was honest and true uh, to my word on that. And I, that was the only way I felt I could be effective as a manager there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Did you imagine that your life would be, you know, in Microsoft or working, you know, as part of the company? Or, or, or did you start to think maybe, you know, it'll be something completely different? Well... You know, there was this question about whether Bill and I would become engaged or not. We dated for mm, probably five years, and so we needed to make a decision about that Um, because I knew I wanted to move on. If we weren't going to get engaged, (laughs) I believe there are other people in life, and I was, you know, 29 at the time, or I was 28 at the time. I have to think about that. I was 28, and look, I wanted to have kids, so— Um, but yes, I knew there would be a time with life after Microsoft. I knew I didn't want to have kids and work at that company. There was just no way. I saw how hard it was. I didn't feel like I could be true to be the executive I wanted to be at Microsoft and true to a family life. So I knew no matter who I married, once it became time to have kids, I was not going to stay at the company. So 1993, you and Bill take a trip to Africa. This is um, a, a year before you you got married. Um, and, and this is before the foundation was established. Um, but I guess already at that point, you were start, sort of starting to think about what you could do with the resources you had. Um, and what, what, did, what happened on that trip? What did you see on that trip that would, I guess, kind of pave the way for, for the rest of, of, of your life? Yes, so the trip to Africa was actually in September of 1993, and then we got married just three and a half months later in January 1st of 1994. So this was while we were engaged, and yes, we had already been discussing that, mo- that you know, we were going to give back to society, but this trip, neither of us had ever been to any countries on the continent of Africa, and so we went. We went on a trip uh, with other couples. Uh, it was to be a safari, which it was, to see the savannah. It was beautiful. We had a fabulous trip. We were in several different countries, and um, but neither of us anticipated the effect the trip would have on us. At the end of the trip, we took some time for a beach vacation on a small island off the coast of Tanzania. And we walked and walked and walked on the beach, which is a great place for us to make decisions and talk about life. Hmm. And at the same time, it was on that trip that we solidified that, yes, 
this discussion we'd been having um, that the vast resources from Microsoft, or the, the resources that from Microsoft that became vast, would uh, the vast majority of them would be would go back to society. Hmm. And I think you know the reason the trip had such a profound effect while we were there to you know see the animals, which are incredible in the savanna. Um, just the people touched us. I mean, you know, seeing seeing people walk on these dirt roads and women so often barefoot, you know, with a be- baby in their belly or, you know, a, a load of crops or sticks on their head or sometimes a baby on the back also. You just started asking yourself these questions. What has happened here that the infrastructure hasn't gotten going you know, and so on the trip, we were in Kenya, Tanzania, Burundi, right before the genocide started. Hmm. Um, and we were in what was then Zaire, which is now, of course, DRC. And so, you know, Bill was ill one day, just one day of the trip, and I went into a Maasai village, and they invited me into the hut and to sit with the family. And, oh, my gosh, I could hardly wait to get out of the hut because the smoke was so intense hmm. because of the cooking fire. Hmm. And just the issues that came up, even just being in this village, I just, you're in a Jeep being driven down the road, and we knew we were going to fly home in a jet plane to, and, you know, turn on a faucet with clean running water when we got home. It just didn't make sense. I mean, you you probably look back at that trip, right, in 1993, with all of the knowledge you now have, and you were comparatively naive, right, because it was your first exposure to an entirely different world. Yes, we were unbelievably naive about how you even go about helping with some of those issues. I will say this, you know, one of the things I love about my husband and still love is he is an incredibly curious learner. He started, we started gathering experts around us to learn and to pick their brains about the history of various countries and the continent and what had happened and where can philanthropy make a difference? Where is it not made a difference? What's government's role? So, you know, as we start the foundation, we have to gather all kinds of experts around us, biologists, immunologists, people in, you know, family planning. When you when you establish a foundation um, in 1994, which is, which is now the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, originally it was the William H. Gates Foundation. Um, did you have a clear sense of what you wanted the focus to be at that time? Or was it was it more like, well, let's just get this off the ground and then we'll figure out what we want to focus on? It was originally, like in the very first year, it was let's get it off the ground. Mm. And we knew, though, that we did need to figure out a focus. And so what we did with the William H. Gates Foundation was started to work on global health, Hmm. um, that vaccines were really this life-saving miracle that we take for granted in the United States, and that we would start on childhood vaccines and a little bit originally on family planning. And then a few years later, we started the Gates Learning Foundation because as I retired from Microsoft with the birth of our first daughter, I was deeply interested in how can computers help girls and how can they help education? And I started to explore those questions. And then, of course, we realized it was much broader than that. How do you, you know, the education system is so big and needs help. And we thought inequity in the United States, this huge inequity we could already see coming, if you had access to computer versus didn't, you were creating this inequity. And so we started to wire libraries. So we actually had these two foundations going at the same time. 
uh, which we then merged in 2000 into the William H. Gate, uh, into the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I think, right, a lot of people might just assume, oh, you know, that's great. You've got uh, all this money to give away and uh, great. But I imagine that it's almost like a startup in some ways, maybe even more complicated because you have to make really tough decisions about how you are going to distribute your resources, right? And there are all kinds of judgments and there's criticism and there's... I mean, starting a foundation from scratch, even even a well-resourced one, it, I'm assuming is not an easy task. No, it was totally like a startup. So we had two employees to begin with over a pizza parlor in Redmond, Washington, <laughs> you know, a mile from Microsoft. And, you know, you'd go and it was a little brick building and you could smell the tea company that was downstairs and the pizza company and, and our little foundation was upstairs. And so it was... Patty Stonecipher, who eventually became the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, was her and an admin. That was it. Hmm. And then Bill Sr. was in his basement with an admin of his home uh, in another part of Seattle, running the William H. Gates Foundation, answering letters and, you know, helping us gather experts. But we knew very, very little going into these fields about what could actually work. But, you know, we started to study what had Rockefeller Foundation actually accomplished? What had Carnegie actually accomplished in the world? Um, I mean, it was all about inequity. How do we work on these inequities? And then how would you do it at scale? And who really, who has really done that? I remember an early dinner we had with a group of scientists where we had made our first very large vaccine grant. It felt like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money we just pushed across the table. And long dinner, lots of great science discussion after several hours, and people are like kind of getting ready to get up and go. And Bill said to everybody, what could you do if you had more money? Hmm. You want to talk about a group of people <laughs> light up in a room. And um, But they threw all these ideas out on the table. Not that Bill and I were necessarily going to do all those ideas with them, but it gave us a lot of other ideas in global health to go pursue. And so we started to learn the value of really asking people for ideas. And uh, we spent many, many years doing what we called learning grants to put a series of grants out in the field to see what you could learn in sanitation, in clean water, in maternal and child health. And we would do that for a number of years before we would decide, okay, here's a lever we could uniquely pull um, and work with government, and then and then we would decide to scale that up. I mean, what's what's remarkable about the foundation is how it's really evolved and changed and pivoted and continues to evolve and change and will evolve and change. But I wonder how you sort of compartmentalize all of the different moving parts because today, I mean, it's the biggest private charitable foundation in the world. Just the number of requests, the number of people around the world who are seeking your help. I mean, it it must be overwhelming at times. It is absolutely overwhelming at times, and it has been. And I would say those are the inflection points. But the thing that helped so much is once we had picked our focus areas, you can let many of the other think pieces drop away. When we started the foundation, we also very quickly then were raising a family with three young children, and Bill was working full-time at Microsoft, and I was on a couple of corporate boards. So it was a lot. <laughs> how did you how did you learn 
what to give up and what to keep. Sometimes it, it, you have to do it, right? You, you can't do everything. So how did you, you can't know, possibly do everything? Like how do you, how do you, how do you know what you can what you just have to let go of, even if it's hard, and what what to keep? I wish I had known this earlier in the foundation's life, but two things came up. One thing somebody said to me very early on that was very sage advice is, Melinda, the foundation is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and I tried to keep that in mind. I didn't realize at the time that all these drops I was putting in the bucket from all these trips and all these people I was talking to, that that was actually adding up. But then someone came along who said to me, um, you don't get a do-over with your kids. Hmm. And I thought, that is so right. I don't get a do-over with my kids. And so I have to really figure out this balance between work life and family life. How much to travel, not travel, how to be home for the kids at those, you know, super key moments for those super key conversations. But believe me, there were some tears along the way. There was a lot of angst. Ah, I'm not doing this right. I had a huge dose of perfectionism that took me a long time to get over. If you think you're trying to be the perfect executive and the perfect parent, you will never succeed because there is no such thing <laughs> as either one of those things or the two together. I'm I'm curious. I mean, you you mentioned this idea of focus, right? And you've got the the big mission, which is global health writ large. Right. But within that within that big mission, there are obviously hundreds and hundreds of narrower areas of focus. Like, for example, malaria, right? Um, and and sometimes you have to presumably you. I mean, sometimes you have to pivot, right? Um, so is that? I mean, when do you know that you're the thing you're focused on has to change or that you have to pivot? Yes. So early on in malaria, what we were originally focused on was a vaccine uh, for sure. Like the holy grail there is a vaccine and to this day is a vaccine. Mm. But we thought we would get it much, much sooner than we did. It's a parasitic disease. It's actually a very difficult vaccine. That's why it's eluded humanity so far. We actually got a vaccine eventually, but it's not efficacious enough. So we very quickly started to realize, okay, you have to have the tools. You have to have drugs for malaria to decrease the amount of time that somebody has these bouts of malaria. Because in the developing world, they're getting it many times a year, two or three sometimes. An adult is out of work or a child dies. Then there's this decision. There was a pretty crucial decision we made at home together after some, I will be honest, some wrestling between the two of us about, hmm, how much are we working on the future versus how much are we relieving pain and suffering of today's world? Hmm. And that's where the focus on bed nets came in. And so as the Global Fund got going, we decided to be a bigger part of the Global Fund because malarial bed nets, there was this belief that we hadn't even executed on it yet as a world, that that would relieve today's pain and suffering. And so we got very involved in then really measuring, could malaria bed nets get out there, get out at scale? Can they, will people actually use them, use them for the right purpose, particularly for pregnant women and children who die of malaria? Um, and lo and behold, if you look at the childhood deaths now and why deaths under the age of five are down so significantly since 1990, it's two things. It's vaccines, which we were part of, pneumonia and diarrheal vaccines, and it is malaria bed net. That is mm. the tool that we use today. 
Now, our malaria strategy, though, over time has pivoted massively because we're learning from great disease modeling now, mathematical models, which countries you need to focus on and in which order and which tools you need to bring to bear while the tools are still coming, while we're still trying to get a malaria vaccine and even better drugs and bed nets that, you know, don't have to be redipped every five years. So, uh, yes, our strategies inside of each one have had to pivot quite a bit in every disease area that we're in. Melinda, as the foundation became bigger and bigger in the 2000s, obviously 2006, a hugely pivotal year when Warren Buffett um, made a, a huge donation, $30 billion to the foundation. And as it as it became bigger and bigger, um, you know, with that comes all kinds of criticisms and second guessing. And, you know, I wonder how you kind of handled that because like everybody, we, you know, we all have a self-image, right? You look at yourself in the mirror and you think of yourself in a certain way, but then other people see you on magazines or on television and they have a different perception of who you are, which may not match your own. And so when you started to see people criticize the, the work you were doing, how did you internalize that? Did it did it hurt you? Did it upset you? Did it harden you? My kids just grounded me, yeah. grounded me enormously. My daughter, who was the oldest one at the time, she would give me the cold shoulder. If I came home in my business suit, she mm. wanted none of that. Mm. She wanted her mommy. And I learned to come home in a pair of yoga pants and be ready to sit on the mudroom floor and read her book to her, her nursery rhyme book. That's where she'd meet me at the back door. And that grounds you. And I knew I was doing a good job as my mom, or I felt I was doing a good job. Yeah. And so as there would be these criticisms from the world, I thought, you know, they just don't understand us and that's okay. They'll never really understand what we're doing. But between my kids and between this focus on inequity and helping the people I have seen in Africa that many people haven't seen, I just know we're doing the right thing. I just do. Um, are there things in the world that you feel in your gut have to be changed that are hard to quantify with data that you can't actually look at, you know, a spreadsheet and say, okay, we can tackle this, we can we can put money there, we can put money there. Things that are just unquantifiable but but are having a huge negative impact on the world if they are not resolved or addressed? Absolutely. <laughs> and that is um, gender equality. I never in a million years thought I was going to work on gender equality. Hmm. I thought gender was the soft issue, like, oh, women work on gender equality. No. What I have come to learn from all of these years of 20 years of travels and looking at all these different areas in many, many different countries around the world, if you don't chip away at the inequities that exist for women, you will never have the impact you want to have with your dollars in philanthropy, ever, period. Full stop. And part of the reason we don't chip away at those issues and break down those barriers is they are hard. Many of them are cultural barriers. But the other issue is we haven't measured as a world women's issues. And sometimes we do it for reasons we don't even realize. For instance, paid work. You know, economists decided early on paid work were the, quote, productive things you do right. in society in right. a corporation. Well, guess what? The economists were males. 
They didn't think about, hey, we could actually measure what a woman does in her home. And in fact, our economies are built on the backs of that unpaid labor. And if you don't look at it, then you're not actually measuring what's truly happening in a society. The biggest worldwide survey done over the last 30 years, which is phenomenally, thank goodness it's been done by USAID, as soon as they went into a home and asked the family who has assets, who's bringing in money here, the man is the head of the household. He would answer first, but does the woman have assets? And if so, how does she get them? And it turns out that is vitally important because the way she spends them is different than her husband. She tends to spend them more on her kids. And if you can help her with that financial piece, women will tell you, and we now finally have some good data all over the world, that when she has finances in her hands, it changes everything in her household about how her husband looks at her, how she looks at herself, how her oldest son looks at her, how her mother-in-law looks at her. So when we can help women build their financial assets, it's one of the ways you can start to unlock their power in their home, in their community, in their work life. And then we're in kind of a moment in the United States, right? Uh, over the past few years, where we're talking about gender equity, obviously the Me Too movement. We're talking about issues like privilege, white privilege, things that make some people uncomfortable. Um, do, you ever, do you ever think about how you might be able to make an impact on addressing some of those cultural questions? I think in the United States and around the world, we're not in a moment of time. We're in this vast sea change. Yeah. And I yeah. could not be more excited about it huh. because what's happening is all of these underlying issues that have been simmering for so long are finally bubbling up and coming to the surface. And it's not pretty. It's, you know, like popping a boil, you know, these things go off. But women around the world will tell you the amount of sexual harassment has been unbelievable. Whether you go to a village in India, whether you sit, I've sat at many tables in Silicon Valley with women who've tried to run the gauntlet of the VC community. So equality to me can't wait. And we have to use these this sea change to truly get momentous change, not to get this moment in time. So as tumultuous as things feel right now and is inelegant or difficult, it's out of those difficult things that change comes. You know, Melinda, I'm sure you've heard the some of the criticisms of big philanthropy that in, in a sense it allows governments – off the hook, that that there are things they just don't have to focus on because, you know, philanthropic organizations will sweep in and take care of it. Um, and I wonder if you think there's some truth to that criticism. I think there's no truth to hmm. it. And I think it's a misunderstanding. Look, there are criticisms of philanthropy that are absolutely valid. But this one is a misunderstanding, and Bill and I even misunderstood it when we first came into philanthropy. Hmm. So if you just look at the scale of philanthropy to government dollars, there is no chance that philanthropy can fill the gap. Hmm. Just think about the scale of these things. If you want to have vaccines at scale around the world, the biggest thing that saves children's lives, you need government to scale it up. It's why Bill and I spend so much of our time, which we never would have predicted, calling on governments, mm -hmm. rich world governments and developing world governments. 
So the role of philanthropy is to take risks, to experiment where you wouldn't want your government to experiment with taxpayer dollars. But once you do those experiments and you prove things out, like a new pneumonia vaccine, a new diarrheal uh, disease vaccine for children, then it's government's role to scale that up and to make sure that the health system in those countries can actually distribute the vaccines. Um, everybody has to play their part. So I think people just misunderstand sometimes the role of philanthropy versus government. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen you and Bill at TED, um, and, and, you know, I, I'm struck by how optimistic you are about the world today. Let me Let me just kind of tell you where I am because I go back and forth on this. I, I, there are, I'm a parent. I've got two kids and there are days where I'm, I'm optimistic and days where I'm really deeply pessimistic. I look at the political situation in the world. I look at climate change. Um, I, we can feel it. We can see it happening in real time. Um, and we see governments, certainly in the Western world, that are retrenching, that are not focusing on this. And I wonder whether you also have moments of pessimism. I say I would say yes. I mean, Bill and I certainly have moments of, I wouldn't say pessimism, but that we get down, right, about some of the things going on in the world. You'll see a leader who we think is a terrific political leader for their own country and doing the right things for the world, their job get changed over, you know, and we think, oh, gosh, okay, will the next government really be in favor of foreign aid? Or, you know, quite honestly, climate change, you know, not only are we getting more smoke in Seattle, which is, uh, you know, in the summer, which is disappointing mm. for two weeks in our most beautiful month, but I'm standing with a farmer in their field in Tanzania, yeah. and they're saying to me, the rains are aren't gone. coming. They're gone. When, yeah. they do, they're, when they do come, they're two months late, and I get a flood, and yeah. I'm not getting two rains anymore. And they've been saying that to me, to be honest, for eight 10 years. So they've seen it coming before we have. And so I often say that you have to actually let your heart break. You have to see the sadness of a family where the rains aren't coming twice and they're not getting the crop yield. And you have to take that in. It is true and it is sad and it is heartbreaking. And then though, you have to eventually metabolize that and lift yourself up and say, okay, but what can be done? And then to say, okay, our job in the world somehow is to help lift people up and help figure out how we can create change. And uh, that's how I see it. So you are, on balance, optimistic about the future of our planet. Definitely. Yes, it's harder to be optimistic <laughs> these days in a certain way. I will tell you one thing that I am optimistic about, though, when I see in the United States and in Europe, the fact that employees can call on their company and say, I expect you all to be doing on things that are not just returning money to the shareholders. Mm. Like, I expect you to be putting less plastic in the environment. I expect this, or that shareholders are using shareholder resolutions. I mean, the fact that you finally see companies coming forth and saying, okay, by 2020, 2025, 2030, I'm committing to taking plastic out of my supply chain. You know, so finally, consumers and employees have more power inside of corporations. You know, we didn't see 20 years ago. Mm. That makes me more optimistic. And this next generation that's coming up that's demanding that. When, when you think about um, the 
the the journey that you've taken and how you your leadership style and approach changed and evolved. Do you think, at least for you, that that some of those leadership traits were innate, that you were born with some of them, or do you think that you learned how, how to become a leader? I think some of them were are innate in my personality. Um, I'm a kind of a challenger at heart, and I, I don't mind having open, honest conversations with people. In fact, I can't stand, to be honest, going to um, a cocktail party and having not having a real conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm all about connection and real conversation. So I think that's innate in my personality. But then I absolutely think, um, you know, I've learned and honed my leadership skills over time, starting luckily, as I said, in high school. And then I had more opportunities in college and more opportunities beyond that, Microsoft and then the foundation. And the way I lead now, you know, I'm in a different role at the foundation. I'm a co-chair. I'm not the C I haven't chosen to be the CEO. I will never be the CEO at the foundation. I've made a very purposeful choice on that. So the way you influence and lead as a co-chair is different than if you're the CEO or you're a president or you're a vice president of an organization or a director. And so I've had to really grow into that co-chair role, to be frank. And does it mean that sometimes when even when decisions are made that you don't love, you just have to kind of step back? Not very often. I've tried that a couple of times, <laughs> and it doesn't always go very well. Because mm -hmm. I think if you have a gut sense about something or you have a sense that you don't have enough data to make that decision, you might actually be more right than you realize. <laughs> and so um, I've learned that you need to go a little bit slower with decisions and not make them so quickly. When I was at Microsoft, we made decisions very quickly, very quick, hard-charging environment. I've learned in, in the foundation's work that you want to be a little bit slower and purposeful and methodical. You have to take a lot of points of view in before you make a decision. But we, we also try not to be too slow. Uh, but I do think that's a piece I've learned over time. That's Melinda Gates. She is still serving as the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And in April, she published her book, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Belted Productions. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.